Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may, we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Par- Parmenius, uh, and Nicholas, all Greek, by the way, um, a, a proselyte and from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So it was a, it was a, it was a logistical problem. Um, they needed to have that handled. It couldn't be ignored. Um, you, know, you can't pray that away. You have to do something about it. So they found some guys to do that. Well, uh, Paul says here, as he's writing to Timothy, be careful about the daily distribution to the widows also. Just because they say they're a widow doesn't mean they're a widow, and he's going to get into that. The church is never meant to replace family responsibility. I'm going to say that louder. The church was never meant to replace a husband's responsibility to his wife in teaching her the word of God, never to replace the wife's responsibility to the husband, whatever responsibility that would be, Never re- replace the responsibility of a mother who's died or whose, whose husband has died. It, it's never meant to replace those family bonds. We're not supposed to raise your children. None of that's supposed to take place. I find it interesting as we go through this, how many people today say, well, I don't believe in organized religion. I believe God's outside of the box of the church. And yet they're the first ones to say, why isn't the church doing more? Can't have it both ways. And be careful about your statements. You can't, and it just shows their heart. It shows the bitterness there. I don't want to be responsible to be accountable. I don't want to be in a group. I don't want to have to serve. And yet, the way the world is today, it's because the church isn't doing what they're so, well, it's because you're not going, you know, kind of thing. You got to be careful about that. And so Paul lays it out because, hey, I don't know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. So they're supposed to give to the poor. Supposed to take care of the poor. We all know that. They're supposed to take care of the needy. Well, define that. Needy how? Grandma took her social security check and went to the casino and lost it all, and now she's needy and she's calling the church for money. Hmm, got to pray about that. Well, I really don't have to. The answer is no. No. So de- define needy. Needy by circumstances that are out of their control? Okay. But needy because of circumstances you placed yourself in? We get calls all the time. Every week, every day, almost, you get calls all the time. Electric bill, and the electric company, thank you, KCPNL, for telling everybody to call the churches, because that's what they do. Why don't you call the churches and ask them to see if they can help you with your bill? Thank you. Um, and they call, and I say, oh, will you go to church here? No. Oh, where's your home church? Why well, don't go to church? Oh. Oh. So you don't love God, you don't love Jesus, you don't want to worship him, but you want his money. Kind of thing. I don't say that out loud. Sometimes I want to. Sometimes, sometimes I hint at that. And uh, no. No. And there's a big discussion about that as to whether, well, that was an opportunity for you. Uh, maybe. Maybe. But after the 12th call of the week, you'd have a different view on it, I think, because it's the same spiel. It's the same folks. Um, and it's Friday night. And they want cash. You know, um, so I'm glad Paul wrote this down because I think honestly a lot of us don't know how to think about it. Maybe, um, but here's scripture. 
and it tells us how to think about it. And it's not what, I don't, if you've never read this, it's not going to be what you think. If you don't have any idea, um, it's, it's, a. Uh, He's telling Timothy to, to stop doing what he's doing. So, uh, verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, that doesn't mean that old men get to get away with everything at church because you can't say anything to them. That's not what it means. The word rebuke there is really mean to strike out at. You don't get to chew out an older man at church, but you do rebuke him. He's going to tell us that later on in verse uh, 19. So you do rebuke him, but the word rebuke there is different from the word rebuke in 19. Okay, so keep that in mind. The word rebuke there is you don't get to chew out an older man. First of all, he's not going to receive it from you because you're young, Timothy. Um, but you do not, you don't let the, you don't let sin get, you can't let sin go. You got to let it, you got to deal with it. That's wrong. That's wrong behavior. You can't be like that. And so obviously he's not telling him that you don't correct older men. But you don't rebuke them. You don't chew them out like you would uh, maybe a younger guy. But if you do a younger guy, you, you chew them out like a brother. And you know what it's like with your siblings. Siblings are good at letting each other have it, you know, pretty blunt. And that's okay. Um, so go ahead and do that. But make sure you're taking care of them in the sense that their family is what he's really getting at. Not, not with how harsh a tone can I use. It's make sure you're treating them like a father. You know, dad can be wrong. Dads, we can be wrong, right? We hopefully know that by now. Um, we don't think we're as wrong as other people think we're wrong, as often as other people think we're wrong. Um, but we can be, and they need to be able to tell us that. You know? um, and we need to be able to receive that also from the Lord and not make, make it about our ego. Um, but treat them like their fathers. And, and, and then also with younger men, treat them like their brothers. You, you, you don't want to burn the bridge so where you can't have Thanksgiving or Christmas anymore because they never want to see your face again. That's, that's inappropriate. That's wrong. Um, the, I'm debating as to whether I should go any farther with that. I don't think I need to. You know, you understand what God is saying in his word. Um, we want to correct them to improve, to get better out of love, to grow. Um, and we would want the same way. And, and how would you like to be corrected? How would you receive correction? What would cause you to make you think, you know what, I think you're right and I'm wrong? It would take a monumental effort on someone's part, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it takes a while for us to switch gears in our mind and our hearts. So knowing that on the other side of things, how you rebuke someone or correct someone is very, very important if you're, if you're truly there to um, help them to grow in the Lord and not to just be right. That's easy. Being right and correcting someone, you can do that all day long and burn bridges left and right, and nobody ever wants to talk to you, but you're right, and you go to bed sleeping, I'm right. And I have nobody that loves me or cares about me or wants to be around me, but I am right. You can do that. That's pretty easy. But to do it like a teacher, to do it like an older brother, or even a younger brother at times, to do it like a brother who, I don't want to lose your affection for me, and I don't want to have to lose my affection for you. I don't want anything broken. I just want you to grow in Christ. That's how we correct each other in a, in a family sort of way. Um, that's how we do it. Okay, now to the widows. Honor widows who are really widows. That tells us right off the bat what he's going to talk about. We want real widows. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, you either have a husband who died or you don't, right? I mean, everybody's a widow. Well, obviously he's going to clarify that. But if any widow, husband's died, has children 
or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. He's going to build on that. But it is our job as children and grandchildren. The responsibility isn't just to your mom and dad to take care of their parents, but if you're a grandchild, it's your responsibility, if you're able, to take care of grandma and grandpa, if your parents aren't able to. It goes down the family lines. And he does this because he wants them to learn to show piety at home. He wants them to learn there's something valuable there for the younger person. And, you know, anybody that's ever taken care of an elderly parent knows that the roles kind of switch. We kind of joke about that. You know, they used to wipe our rears. Now we're wiping their rears kind of thing, you know. Maybe you haven't got to that place yet, but you used to help them, or they used to help you walk. Now you're helping them walk. Let's make it a little more um, easy for us. You learn something in that. There's some value to that. It's not an inconvenience. It may be, but you learn to count it as a blessing. You learn that inconvenience to be a blessing, and you learn something from it. And Paul knows that. He doesn't want the church to take that learning lesson away from the children and the grandchildren. They need to experience that. God's designed us to do that. He makes us old and decrepit when we get older. And we don't like it being old and decrepit as you feel your joints falling apart and eyes not working like they used to or other things not working like they're supposed to. You know that. But it gives other people the opportunity to then care for you. And it gives you the opportunity as an older person, I'm going to throw this out there, to be cared for, which is humbling. But it's good for us to be humble. Oh, I don't know if my dad ever received that. No, he probably won't at first. And so make it easy on him. Learn how to make it easy on him to receive help from you. It isn't easy for us. You don't get to be brash and harsh with them. It takes a delicate touch all reverence and respect and understanding the gray hair and the value of that person and, and then doing it in such a way that you, you don't need to trick them into making them think it's their idea or whatever. There's no deceit involved here. It's just a matter of making yourself available and making yourself so humble, so much more humble that in their humility they don't feel ruined or defeated or less than who they used to be. It's a natural thing. And it takes some skill. And you've got to be led by the Spirit, not as to whether you should help your parents or not, but how to. You need to be led of the Spirit on that because everybody's different. But Paul says, I don't want that. They're not, they're not our responsibility. And he's going to say as much at the very end of this. It's the children and the grandchildren's responsibility to learn to repay uh, their parents um, for this is good and acceptable before God. I've got six kids. What do they say? The average kid to raise the kid is, I don't know what they say, $750,000 per kid to raise them or something like that. I plan on getting all of that back from all six children. I'm adding it up in my head. It's going to be, be really, really wealthy. It's going to be great. You better start earning now, saving. Or I'm just going to make it real. If they don't have any money, I'm going to make it really hard on them to take care of me so they earn their money. You know, no. Good and acceptable before God. Paul doesn't say it's because I don't want to do it or because it's too much of a drain or there's an economic situation at the church. All that's probably true. It is a burden on the church. But what he says here is it's good and acceptable before God. He says this is part of God's plan. I'm going to build on this a little bit. I'm going to go beyond the scriptures a little bit and take it into some other ministries that the church is starting to do through tradition, not because we have a, a scriptural basis for it, but through tradition 
we do things um, thinking that we're helping, but we're actually harming. And that's where prayer has to come into it. Every single ministry the church does, you've got to pray. Is this what God wants us to do? And is this consistent with scripture? Or are we t- putting a band-aid on a symptom, not realizing that there's more healing that needs to, that needs to take place through not doing something? I'll get to that in a minute. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone, no children, no grandchildren, no one to take care of her, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. In other words, there's a distinction between even those that are left alone. They're walking with the Lord. They're praying. They're believers. They're trusting in God. Honestly, the true widow probably isn't begging for the church to help. But the church recognizes it and spots it and says, is anybody taking care of you? No, I've just been praying and God's been doing it so far. Oh my goodness, what can we do for you? That's how it's supposed to go down. Not a phone call or anything like that. It's supposed to recognize it. She's here all the time, you know. Why are you here? It's snowing outside. It's, It's freezing. Why are you at church, honey? Oh, I just thought I'd seek the Lord in prayer. How's your heat at home? It shut down last night. You're here staying warm. Oh my goodness. You know, that's how it comes about. But she who's living for pleasure, in other words, she's living for herself, who lives in pleasure, is dead while she lives. These are pretty harsh statements coming from Paul to Timothy. That's a hard one to to teach because it goes against what we think. What does he mean by that? She's living in pleasure. She's going to the casino. She's off to Cabo. You know, she's doing her thing. And then she comes in and says, I don't have money for rent. Well, don't go to Cabo and don't go to the casino, honey. You know, don't buy any more jewelry. You've got plenty, you know, kind of thing. I mean, there's some things there. You're living for yourself. You're not living for God. And because of that, in your tight income, you're, you're not making it. And so Paul calls him on it. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. Command the widows to live a pious life, to live a humble life, to live a life of a widow who's given over to God, like Anna in the temple, who was praying constantly and serving God all the days of her life from her youth, from her virginity, it says. I mean, even from when she was, she, she must have been a widow a long time. But she's a great example. And we're supposed to command and teach those things. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he uh, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So in other words, those that are trying to pawn off their adult, uh, their parents, um, to the church because they don't want the responsibility, they've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. Well, it doesn't get much worse than an unbeliever. An unbeliever is going to hell. But this is someone who understands what they're supposed to do and isn't doing it, and they're making the church take care of them putting their responsibility. See, the church, we think of it as a group, as an organization, as a, an LLC or an or a incorporation or a 501c3. That's what we think of when we think of church. And he's saying, no, no, no. You have responsibilities that you don't want to do and you're putting them on another person. You're making other people do that. It's your responsibility to take care of your parents. It's not Susie's responsibility over here in the church to take care of your parents. That's because that's how it's going to be. The church doesn't show up as an LLC at someone's house. It's a person that goes and does their job for them. It's your responsibility. 
You're worse than an unbeliever. We have to be careful about that in the church, that we're not taking over. We have a children's ministry here for a reason. It's because the kids wouldn't be able to stand sitting in here. I'm too boring. There's not enough going on. They need to move. You guys are adults. You, you guys even still need to move a little bit, you know. It can't be too boring for you or you're not off. But for the kids, it's unbelievably boring. You know, oh my goodness. Where's, you know, so they get snacks and they have fun and we do this so that you guys can get taught the word of God and then bring it home to your kids. Now they, are, we have four things that we do in our children's ministry. And here's the priority. Here's how it goes. We're going to return your kids to you safe. If that's the only thing that happens, you're going to get your kids back alive for the most part. There's no broken... Sometimes they get broken, yeah, for the most part. I mean, they're always alive. We've never brought it, no. We've never, we might have a broken arm or something like that, but that's a, we're still alive. That's the primary responsibility, alive. The second thing is they're going to be loved and they're going to have fun here. They're going to, have, they're going to be loved. And here's why. We have a reason for that. Because we want, the, we want the place, church, that's known as church, the place where my parents went to church, where they learned the word of God, the fragrance of Christ was around them. Like breaking bread brings back fond memories for you. I don't think anybody has a baking bread panic attack. You know, oh, it's baking bread. It reminds me of that time. No, everybody's like, oh man, I want some butter. You know, that's what we think. We want church to be like, we want Sunday school to be like that. They remember this place. And I think you're going to be surprised. Number three is that they, exp- they feel the love of God. I mean, they, they, ex- they feel it from their teachers. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a hug, a touch, uh, an understanding, a conversation. The final thing, and fourth on the list, is we teach them the Bible. That's, that's last. Because you cannot teach them the Bible without these other three things being in place. It's the fourth thing, okay? And so some days, some nights, and our Sunday school ministry shrinks and expands depending on who wants to be back there to teach the kids. Because honestly, we're, there's always a shortage of teachers because, I don't know why, um, I prefer it. Honestly, I mean, I love you guys, but kids are, kids are pliable, they're soft, and they hear, and they get it, and they, they're right at it. They don't argue, they don't care. Oh, yeah, well, that's the truth. I love it. I'm going to do what God says. And they run off and play. You know, I love that. That's easy. And they're fun, and you can see the light bulb come on. Um, but sometimes it expands, and it shrinks, and all of a sudden we're combining classes because we don't have so many teachers back there. And if we get one done, we're happy. They're alive. We made it. 27 toddlers and they're all alive. Take them, you know. What'd they learn today? Not a thing. They learned how to go back to their parents, you know. We do that. We're not here to be spiritual parents. It's a vitamin pill. It's a protein shake. It's a supplement to what they're learning at home. It's the parents' responsibility to teach your kids the word of God. The parents raise up the kids in the way that they should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. Nowhere does it say Sunday school raises the kids in the way that it should go. Nowhere. So we do that. And we do the best we can, and we're really good at it. We usually get number four down. We usually get all the way through them to four. We have good teachers. We have good people. But it's one night a week, or it's one day a week. It in no way takes the responsibility away from the parents from sitting down, having quiet times, Bible studies with them, teaching them about Jesus, helping them memorize the word of God, getting into their hearts, not just in their heads. All of that is completely the responsibility of the parents. And a lot of people don't know that. And then I'm going to touch on one that's not so popular. Um, women's ministry. A lot of people don't like the fact that we don't have a whatever every single week. It is not our responsibility to teach women the Bible. 
That happens on Wednesdays and Sundays, every week. You get two women's Bible studies every single week. It's here. There's no reason men and women can't sit together and learn the Bible together. But through tradition, it's common that every single church has a women's ministry. We have women's events. But we don't want, and here's why. You guys are just mean. You just don't like. No, no, no. If we do that, oftentimes women's ministry replaces the husband's responsibility in the home. And it damages the marriage. It doesn't strengthen it. It does harm. When the need is taken away, the pressure is taken away, the questions are stopped being asked at home, and the men find out why. They don't have to look it up anymore. They don't have to find out the answers. They don't have to seek the Lord. They don't have to pray because they're going to get it in the women's Bible study on Thursday or whatever. This isn't popular. I know that. But we pray about these things. We seek the Lord. God, what do you want to do here? Do you want to do this or don't you want to do this? What's the deal? And he's strongly impressed. It is and oftentimes taking it. We had an example of that. Um, we did something uh, through the children's ministry or the women's ministry just stopped. Um, we had one going for a while and it just quit. And that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. You can go and come as it pleases because the word of God's always taught here twice a week. And so there's no reason any women should feel slighted. Um, but um, one of the guys who doesn't go to church anymore said, that was the best ministry this, this, it's the best ministry this ministry's ever had. And I said, oh, gosh, I hope not. I would hope that Wednesdays and Sundays are pretty good, you know, kind of thing. I said, why do you say that? And he gave me his reason. And it absolutely confirmed the fact that it was a good thing that it shut down when it did. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. He didn't feel any need. He wasn't teaching his wife. He wasn't praying with his wife. He wasn't meeting her needs spiritually. He wasn't there for her. He wasn't her best friend. He wasn't the go-to. And he should have been. He always should have been, always. He felt that responsibility lifted from him, and so did she. And he was going like he always did, parallel, watching football, drinking beer, doing his thing, and she was growing, for sure, but not closer to her husband. And in the process, you lost out what God's calling. Even Paul tells him that. If you have a question, honey, wife, woman, ask your husband at home. And the point of that is you kill two birds with one stone. Not only do you get your answer, but you also spur him on to good works. I need to get off my rear and be the spiritual leader of my house. I need to be the high priest in my house. I can't be doing this anymore. I know. Um, but we do women's events and we do guys' events. We do that once in a while as the Lord leads, but only as the Lord leads. God's designed, I mean, without any church, without any organization at all, what does Genesis look like? It's a family. The wife submits to the husband. The husband leads the wife. The children are in submission to both. No church involved, and yet solid Christian godly walks were developed in Genesis. Without priests. I mean, Abraham didn't meet a priest until he saw that one guy, you know. He was the priest of his household, and it was going great, like it was supposed to, as he was the father of faith, trusting in God. Sarah was following along, didn't make, made some mistakes along the way. But she learned not to run to somebody else and talk about her problems with her husband. She went to him. 
or she went to God directly and her walk grew because she had to rely on God or her husband. Her husband wasn't paying attention to him anymore. So she relied on God. She cried out to God for help and he heard her and her strength and her faith grew in the Lord. Our ministries are never to be a crutch. And if they become a crutch, we're crippling Christians. We're not helping them. We're crippling them. I didn't mean to use this as an opportunity to talk about that, but I know that it's an underlying issue in our fellowship. I know it is. I know it is. Uh, Jenny and I feel it often. Um, But we're not mean-spirited. We love you. And we really feel like this is the absolute best for you. That's why we do what we do. That's why we pray about things. That's why we walk the way we walk. Um, That's why we've developed this ministry the way it's developed. We believe we're led of the Spirit. And it's going to be awesome. But for that to work, you've got to accept it. And not fight it. But, we'll leave it at that. Widows, you've got to be walking with the Lord. You've got to be walking with the Lord. And guys and gals and children and grandchildren, you've got to be taking care of these ladies. Now, verse 9, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. And not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has uh, diligently followed every good work. Guys, those are all qualifications for the ones that don't have anybody, that are alone. But refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow Um, wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. In other words, they, well, he's talking about they're going to, they may act inappropriately trying to get a husband is what he's getting at there. Um, The idea is if you're 59 or, or, or younger, you need to, you're not a widow, go, go work, go do something, go make your money. You can provide for yourself. You don't need to be taken care of. Because verse 13 takes place if they do that. And he's obviously experienced this. That's why he writes this down. He's not saying, I think this might happen. He's seen this take place. And they've adjusted. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. That's what happens. He says, I've seen it, basically. (laughs) They're idle. He wants them working. Get to work. Therefore... I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. That verse 14 is probably an interesting one to teach most of the time in 2018. But Paul expected that. No, you need to get married, you need to bear children. At 59? I guess. Manage the house. Take care of it. And it is a management position. It isn't easy to do that. And give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it must relieve those who are really, that it may relieve those who are really widows. In other words, you're stealing resources from those that truly don't have anybody. They don't have anybody. Now, 
Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. In other words, there's elders that don't rule well. They get half honor. They get regular honor. But those who rule well get double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And they are talking about pastors there. So if you've got a good pastor, he gets a double salary, basically. So tomorrow. <laughs> Actually, yeah, no, that's a different subject, I guess. Um, <laughs> but make sure. And he's going to go on. For the scripture says, and he's going to use scripture to back it up. Because he doesn't want anybody thinking, well, that's just because you're a pastor, Paul. Of course you'd say that, you know. No, no, no. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while he's treading out the grain. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Scripture says it's normal. It's normal. It's not an abnormal thing. Verse 19, do not be deceived. Or do not, I'm sorry, do not receive. Same thing. An accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So... That means they can't just all have heard the same rumor and come up and bring an accusation. You need two or three people that were eyewitnesses to the event. And here's why. Paul knows that Satan wants to separate people, sheep, from their shepherds. He doesn't want them under their pastors. He doesn't want them listening to their pastors. He wants to take them out. And so he's going to bring up accusations. And there's nothing you can do about that. Accusations are accusations. They just happen. They better not be true. But if you're going to investigate one, it needs to have two or three witnesses. can't just be one person saying, I saw him do this. Is anybody with you? Because I don't know if you have a grudge against him or if you just don't like him or what the deal is. But we need two or three witnesses. And here's, here's the thing. It may have been true. You may have actually witnessed it. And you think it's wrong, this verse. I can't believe that there had to be somebody else here. It's not my fault nobody else saw it. I'm the one that saw it. Okay. But did God want to reveal it? This is where you trust God. Did God want to reveal it? If God wants to reveal something, believe me, he brings it out in the open. Maybe he showed you specifically because he doesn't want you to have anything to do with that person anymore. It's for you. Fine. Or he wants you to leave that church. Fine. Feel free. But to bring the accusation without two or three witnesses, God says, Paul's word says, scripture says, that there's going to be two or three witnesses if the, if the accusation is going to be received. So you've got to be careful about that. Watch it. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Mm. That's where I was talking about. That verse 20 helps us with that don't rebuke an older man. Well, if he's sinning, you do. You correct him. You just don't, you don't strike at him is the correct word there in, uh, in the beginning here. You don't strike out at them. You, you rebuke him. Then you can do it publicly, um, letting everybody know this is not how you behave. You know, this is not, the, it's not appropriate. You, you do the Matthew 18 thing where you go to them in private and you talk to them first. If they don't receive that, you bring somebody else with you as a witness. And after that, you bring it publicly. But Paul says it's okay to rebuke someone in the presence of all. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. You know, when they said they had given everything, they had lied to the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't get the one, two, three of Matthew 18. They got the, you're dead, and they died right there on the spot. So, God wants a pure church. He does. And when God is going to purify a church, he'll make sure that it's out in the open. What needs to be out in the open? Um, I say that because aren't you glad that your sin isn't out in the open right now? I mean, everybody's going, yeah, you're not going to do that in front of everybody, are you? Because then everybody will think you're a real wicked sinner when you're really not. Um, but you are. Um, <laughs> and so am I. Aren't you glad that everything you ever did isn't published but when God wants it exposed, 
He does. When you stop listening to him, when you stop repenting, when you don't take it, when you don't listen to him, um, when he can't get through to you anymore, he'll do whatever he has to do to make it change, to get your attention. I think that's why you see a lot of these big guys, um, the big pastors, you know, the mega churches, when they fall, it becomes newsworthy, you know. Um, I guarantee you that's not the first time God's ever tried to get a hold of them. He's whispered to them his, their whole ministry probably, ever since they started sinning in that area. Don't do this. Stop it. And maybe for a while they were really repentant and they, they said they were never ever going to do it again, but then it kept coming back or whatever it is until finally they just justified it in their minds. I'm okay. Hey, I got needs. You know, and this is how, if, if I'm going to be, in, I got so many responsibilities, so many big things going on. I don't know what these guys think. I imagine the pressure's great up there. I know you're supposed to walk by faith, but I, if it's hard for me, in this size, I can't imagine what these guys are going through with 10, 12, 15,000 people in their churches. Staff. I mean, you're more a CEO than you're a pastor. Making sure you make salary and, and everybody's getting their paychecks. And, you know, this Sunday school teacher did this thing. And, oh, my goodness, we got the police came again. Or, you know, wow. And so maybe with all their pressures, they decided in their minds that maybe we could get away with this. Well, eventually God says no if you're not going to repent, I'm going to bring it out in the open. And eventually it happens. And I think about those guys that got caught and are out in the open. I'm looking at them going, there by the grace of God go I. Honestly. Or any one of us. Not just pastors. Anybody. There by the grace of God. Because if I stop listening to the Holy Spirit prompting me to repent and to turn, and I start justifying my sin in my own mind, any one of us can end up there. So those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now we know that we just read that the laying on of hands was for those seven that were going to wait on tables, right? They laid hands on them. They didn't do it suddenly. They wanted to make sure they were filled with the Spirit and so on. And that's true. That's an aspect of this. Another aspect of verse 22 is, Timothy, before you align yourself with any other ministries out there, make sure. Don't lay hands on them suddenly. Don't become a partaker with them. You may be a partaker in sin. Just because so-and-so brought them to church and said, they're the greatest guy ever. They've got this great ministry. You should, we should really give them money. Hold on a minute. I'm going to do my due diligence. First of all, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to Google them. You know? I'm going to find out everything I can. I'm going to Facebook stalk them. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to find out everything about them. I'm not going to jump into with these guys. I don't know what they do over there. You know? Be careful about that stuff. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourselves pure. And that goes right along with when he says, don't, don't raise up a deacon um, who's a novice or a beginner, lest they be filled with pride. Not only are you doing yourself harm by lining themselves with that person, but you could actually do them harm. They might be thinking, I'm, an, I'm a fast up. And, there's a 50-year-old over there that doesn't do what I do. Oh, you got pride already, you know. Be careful of that. So when it comes to ministry, you don't lay hands on anybody suddenly or hastily. Wait. Just wait. We just learned that last Sunday. Just wait three days, you know. Sunday school ministry here, we wait a year. You've got to be here a year before you can go back there. We've got to know you. I don't care if you have a recommendation from Chuck Smith himself. God rest his soul, you know. I was in ministry for 20 years at Costa Mesa. That's awesome. 
then another year won't hurt you, will it? Because I don't know who you are. Um, I was back in the big tent. That was a long time ago. What you've been doing since? You know? None of that stuff matters. We don't know where you are right now. What brought you out here? Are you running from something? Are you registered in California? I mean, I don't know who you are. So you wait. Lay hands on no one. And you know what? Time shows. Time proves a lot of stuff. Brings stuff to the surface. It does. Because in that year, heat gets applied to that person, and you'll find out what's really in them over time. Are they the right temperament for kids? Are they safe? Are my kids safe with this person? You'll discover it. You'll know. And that's why we make people wait a year for that and other positions also. Uh, Nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Timothy, watch out for that. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake for your frequent infirmities. A lot of people use this scripture to say, see, we can drink. Well, of course you can. But I want you to notice something here. Let's, let's stop at looking at the permission that Paul gives, but look at Timothy's life. Timothy understood Paul's teaching to mean, I need to abstain from alcohol if I'm going to be in the ministry. That's what he understood Paul's teaching to mean. No matter what we think Paul's teaching means or try to justify in our own minds, Timothy obviously took it to heart and says, uh-uh, I know the best thing for me is to steer clear of something that has influence over me and causes me to have cloudy judgment. And so I'm sticking clear of anything that would have um, that would be under the influence of. And so Paul has to tell Timothy, even though you're vomiting and throwing up because you're eating dirty water, you're drinking dirty water, throw some wine in there so your stomach can tolerate it because it's a purifier. Alcohol, kill all that germs in there. Don't just drink water, drink a little bit of wine. He has to tell this kid to do that. Interesting. Another way to look at it, another aspect of 23 is, you know what, you got a headache, take an aspirin. It's not faith. You're talking about Paul here telling Timothy who's got a stomach ache and doesn't hand him a handkerchief that's been blessed or his belt that he wore, his apron that he wore. He gives him a prescription. I'm throwing that out there too. I'm all for praying for headaches. I'm all for praying for healing for sure. But you know what, Timothy? You need to have some wine because you're throwing up all the time. You're sick. You know, I've got cancer. Well, you bet we're going to pray and lay hands on you first you know what? You may need chemo. You may need surgery. It's okay. You know, this is from Paul that writes this stuff down. You know, I don't know if you picked that stuff up when you read this, but as I'm reading, I'm like, you know what? He didn't, he didn't pray for him to be better. He says, Timothy, you need to have a little wine for your stomach so that you're not so sick all the time. Frequent infirmities. It happened all the time for him. It was chronic. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. Don't misunderstand me because Paul certainly did. And a lot of people got healed in Paul's ministry, but Timothy didn't. And we don't know why. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those uh, that are otherwise cannot be hidden. In other words, not everything looks like it's, it's not as it seems. That's a great guy. He does. He seems to be a great guy. He really does. Keep that in there, though. Seems to be. I don't know what's going on in his mind or in his heart, neither do you. Um, Likewise, that guy is a creep. I can't believe he's such a loudmouth. What a loser. I can't, oh, he's so annoying. He's not even a Christian, I don't think. Maybe. Or maybe God's working on him in some areas, and he's actually more Christian than a lot of people sitting next to him. You know? Be careful about that. In other words, he's telling Timothy, Pay attention to the fact that God is doing a work in the heart and that there are also sins hidden in the heart. 
And we don't know which is which and what's going on. So, all right, chapter 6, five minutes. Ready? Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved, teaching and exhorting these things. Okay? Um, there's obviously a problem. My, my boss is sitting next to me at church, but when we go there, he expects me to work when I go to work on Monday. He says, you need to serve them like you'd serve anybody, as unto the Lord. Serve them. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of, of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself, Timothy. Paul doesn't pull any punches there. Watch out for those who teach otherwise, that don't teach what I just taught you to teach, Timothy. Watch out for those who think otherwise, because um, they are corrupt to the bone. And he tells them, I want you to withdraw yourself from them. Don't align with them. Don't lay hands on them. Everything he's been talking about kind of culminates right here. From such, withdraw yourself. Keep your ministry pure, Timothy. Don't line yourself up. They may be out there and they may be doing great, but don't line yourself up with those guys. Interesting books out there that are being written all the time. And we love to read books on Christianity and the power of Christian living and how can I make this any easier or faster. It's really why we read those things. Instead of just going through the word of God and doing what it says, because everything that's in that book, by the way, should be here. And if anything's in that book that's not in here, needs to get tossed anyway. And so really every Christian library that's ever been written, all of it, it's all right here. Everything you need, everything that needs for godliness and righteousness is in the word of God. There's a book out there that's very popular right now about washing faces. Be careful, ladies. When you want to wash your face, girl, be careful. Well, it's such a good book though. It just touched my heart. Okay, fine, I'm glad it touched your heart, but doctrinally speaking, is it sound? Is it solid? Have you looked into it? Did you look into the author? What is their background? What's their bent? Where are they coming from? What are they leading you into? What's the next step? What's phase two of this book? Be careful, because if any of it is contrary to scripture, it goes, it has to go. Be careful of these books. Um, so, Timothy says, or says to Timothy, be careful aligning yourself with these guys. Just withdraw yourself. You'd be better off not being next to them than with them. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, which is what these ministers should be. Godly with contentment. It's great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. We're going to came in naked, we're leaving naked. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Notice he doesn't even say shelter there. Timothy, Paul doesn't even expect to be under a roof every night. He says, I got food and clothes and a place to stay, right? And a house, right, Paul? Jesus even says, I don't know where I'm going to lay my head tonight. Foxes have homes, but I don't. Are you sure you want to follow me? No, food and clothing is a promise from God. You're not going to be naked running around. You're going to have some kind of clothing on you. Might be old, might have holes in it. And you're going to have some food that day. Even the ravens will drop it in your lap if necessary. 
But that's where we're contentment. And are you, are you good with that? Am I good with that? You know? I wish I had a better car. You have a car? You know? And not a bike? Or legs? You know, I saw that. That was interesting. This guy driving a nice car wishes he had a newer car because it was getting old miles. And the guy next to him says, I wish I had that car. And it went on down to that. And then this shows a guy in a wheelchair that says, I wish I had those legs so I could walk anywhere I wanted to walk. You know, it's just relative to your situation. Contentment. Godliness with contentment is great game. And having food and clothing in these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's where that lust for money comes from. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed uh, from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Nothing wrong with being rich and there's nothing wrong with money. It's that love and that greed that's going to pierce you through. Um, you know, God makes one rich and adds no sorrow to it. That's biblical. But when you try, strive for that, um, and you're willing to trade your faith for it, or your, your, your character, your godly character for it, um, you're going to fall into all sorts of problems. The rich young ruler is a great example of that. And What should I do? You know, I've, I've kept all the commandments from my birth. I've done all these things because Jesus told him, why don't you sell all that you have and come and follow me? And he was sad. He couldn't do it because his love for money was more than his love for God. There's nothing wrong with being a rich young ruler. Good job. Congratulations. Hard worker. Hard charger. Love it. You should be that way. I wish, I wish every young man was a millionaire. That'd be great. But with a proper understanding of the use of money, what it's for. The rich young ruler couldn't give away his money. He was a miser, which is not stated, but that's the idea. He could not release it. It was more important to him than just being with Jesus, food, and clothes, which is where the contentment was. Our money should never be that important to us. Um, Proverbs 11. I've got several scriptures. We're not going to have time to read them, but I want to read these three. Proverbs 11, 24 through 25, because it's from wisdom, the book of wisdom, which is Proverbs. Twenty-four through twenty-five. There is one who scatters yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. A generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Uh, next one is Proverbs nineteen seventeen. He who has uh, pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. We'll come back to you. Never have to worry about that. Um, Proverbs 22.9, and that's the last one, but there's others. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Money isn't the issue, and how much money you have isn't the issue. It's how you feel about it is the issue. If it becomes a love, an obsession, and you become a miser, um, and you can't break away from it, you have, and this is the key, you have a symptom of a heart issue. That grip is a symptom of something wrong with your heart. Um, you, you can't uh, 
get rid of a cold by having a cough drop. The fact that you're coughing shows that you have a problem and you need to deal with it. And that's all being a miser is. That's all it being tight is. It's, it's a problem. It's a lack of trust in that area with the Lord. You can't release it. You don't understand that if I gave it all away today, God could easily give it all back to me tomorrow. There's just no, there's no faith in that area uh, of your life. You've given, your, given God everything else, maybe. But this is a symptom of a deeper problem. And so uh, he warns Timothy about that. Be content. And if you get anything above clothing and food for the day, make sure you keep a light touch on it because it can go tomorrow and who cares? It makes no difference because it doesn't change your ministry, Timothy. It doesn't make a difference at all. Whether you get a paycheck or not, whether you have a building or not, you're going to teach the Word of God next Sunday and next Wednesday. It makes no difference. And uh, sometimes things are great, sometimes they're not. Um, but it doesn't make any difference. A tight wallet is a symptom of sin in your life. So watch out for that. God loves generosity because he is generous. He loves generosity. He loves generosity in us because it's a characteristic of him. You know, and as a recipient of a paycheck from the church, it's difficult for me to teach on generosity. You know, um, only because I don't want that coming from you. I don't want anybody to look at me and say, oh, I see what it is. Yeah, okay. I can see where this is going now. No, it's a characteristic of God. It's like, it, it, change it then. I don't care about your generosity. I hope that you're most, the most loving people on this earth. I pray to God you're the most loving people. Now, I'm going to benefit from that also because you're going to love me more, right? It, it, it's, it's not that. It's, it's a characteristic of God. Generosity is who he is. He fills us with his Holy Spirit to where we have to tell him to stop because it's overwhelming us. He's blessed us with everything that pertains to life and godliness through his son Jesus. I have salvation, unearned. That's what grace is. It's a lavishing. It's a generosity that just comes from him. That's who he is. And he wants that to be in us. He wants us to have that reckless abandonment towards our stuff. You know? If you have two coats, give one away. You know? Is the idea. Let it go. But you, O man of God... Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Pursue those. In other words, there's some work that needs to be done there. It isn't just bestowed. Some of those are the fruit of the Spirit. But we need to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit show those things in our life and become those things in our life. Otherwise, pursue them. Fight the good fight of faith. It is not. It is a fight. I mean, that's what it is. And you can either lose or you can win. And you've got to have that determination. When I wake up, I'm going to fight the good fight of faith today. I'm going to trust in God. I'm not going to trust in myself, and I'm not going to trust in this world. I will trust in God. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession and the assurance of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep his commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Don't ask me when, I have no idea, he says. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Got on it there, didn't he? Got on a roll. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Making that comparison that I just made. God gives us all things, gives us riches richly to enjoy all things. You know? And it's important to remember that. 
God wants us to enjoy this life. And he wants us to enjoy it richly. He gives us richly so we can enjoy this life, you know, to, in abundance. Not to be the sourpusses that we can be sometimes. And, oh, I just don't, I want to I be really sad because I want anybody to think that I'm super happy. Because then they wonder, no, enjoy life. Enjoy it. He gives us life that more abundantly. But if you're one of those rich people, don't trust in that money. It's a tool. And it's temporary at best. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life on eternal life. In other words, don't die with it in your bank account. (laughs) Make sure you've used it. um, Or leave it as an inheritance to your kids. You know, I don't want to leave that out. That's important. But make sure that they get it in such a way that it's tax-free or somehow, you know, watch out for that rip-off artist at your death, the IRS. Um, but, <laughs> but political again. It is. Cap- that, that death tax is absolutely ridiculous. It's, I mean, you can't pass on your farm to your kids unless you do it in such a right way. Or they would take half of it. 50%, 40% right now, I think it is. Sometimes it's 60. Terrible. So look into that one-time giving thing for your kids. They can do annually. Start dumping it on them. Give it to them early. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. If you're rich and you know it, clap your hands. No. (laughs) Give it away. Use it properly. Store up good works. That's what it's for. Oh, Timothy, exclamation point. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge by professing it. Some have strayed concerning the faith. That's his, that's his final commission to Timothy. Guard what was committed to your trust. It's easy to start a church. It's easy to start a Bible study. It's hard to do it 20 years from then the same way you did it when you started. It isn't easy because constantly, there's a constant hammer on you. Constantly change, conform, move. Don't do that anymore. Change this way. Do that. Don't listen to God. Don't listen to God's word. Move this way. There are things that show up in your mailbox at church constantly. Here's how to get your church to grow. Do it, just do this, and you have seven steps to you know, a mega church kind of thing. Guard it, because Satan wants to destroy it. He'd love for us to be a big country club. He'd love for it to be that way, where only the cool people are here and only the well-dressed. He'd love for that, because then you're not spiritually growing if you have any Christ at all. Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. In other words, they've taken away and stopped teaching the word of God and they began to teach other things in the church. Symptom ministry, I call it. They're dealing with symptoms. Five easy ways to be rich or God wants to bless you and um, there's so many side issues that we can get off on um, when we need to teach the word of God. And, and trust it and do it. That's what is needed. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your warning to Timothy um, to watch out for those ministries that can take the place of the family responsibility. And actually, as the tr- traditions of men are taught, uh, we make the commandments of God void. And uh, that's the danger of the Pharisee. Um, and we don't want that in our church, in our fellowship at all. God, uh, some things are needed. Some things are beneficial uh, because it goes along with and it, it uh, builds up your plan for the family and that we want to do. 
we do want the church to be such a tight-knit family that when there is a widow that doesn't have anybody, they feel more than comfortable receiving from us because we are a family. On the other hand, we don't want to stop the growth in the family um, towards you and towards godliness. And some of that can be a struggle. And it can be hard, but it's necessary for a strong family unit. And uh, Lord, that's what we want. We desire that. So God, help us to be submitted to you and to your word. Uh, to read your word and not the traditions of men. And to, uh, to obey it, to accept it wholeheartedly um, as what's best and designed by you, God. We love you so much. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need any prayer before you go, we'd be glad to pray with you before you leave.